Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight Show 159. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hello, yes. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a a show. (laughs) I say that, I know, sorry. Anyway, this is what's coming up in the day's show. We have a little announcement by Larry Santuru on Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. Why you should get that book. Then we hit in with straight in with fiction crawler Matthew Sanborn Smith. Then we have Pat Cadigan with a story called Life on Earth. And Pat Cadigan is a featured writer in Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. Next we have part two of Jason Sanford's Sublimation Angels coming in there. Then Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. And we have, to round it off, we have a new little section on new fact articles starting up. Morgan Saletta. Morgan is, or has done a couple of narrations for Starship Sova, but he's going to do now a monthly fact article on everything. There you go. Listen out for that. And right at the end, we have a promo as well for Schlock Magazine. So do look out for that. So that is Oral Delights, show 159. I hope you will stick around and enjoy the show. Don't forget, and I've had no really much, a couple of correspondence on the forums about the ending, the enhanced feed. No one's getting back to us, so it is on its final legs. I'm going to end that enhanced feeds probably sometime over the Christmas time, ready for the new year. No one seems to be missing it, so there she goes. Let's dip into this week's show. So as you know, we have Starship Sova's Volume 2 is out now, Stories Volume 2. I can't even get me bloody title of my book. Right, so... Are you getting it? Well, I've, yes, there's been the, the actual, what's nice now is, you know, you put it out and you, you kind of see, you know, your figures are going. But I think on Lulu, we have 93 copies have been sold of different, various different formats. Is And that, getting a lot of feedback about the formats, you know, just different formats. A lot of people, you know, everyone's different and it's... You know, the, actually, the, the paperback is the, the kind of the, the main one, followed closely by the hardback edition. You know, with the with the extras in, but all of the kind of you know across the board, they're all kind of selling. And I'm really pleased, honestly. If you've bought a copy of that, thank you so much. You know, what I mean, this is this is what's making me sit here and do it week after week. 
six years down the road and still doing it and like say winning a Hugo, you know, supporting us, thank you so much. But I was saying, you know, you, you put these out and then, you know, you, or you put your, your, kind of, your wares out and it's only like a, a week later where you get like the feedback is starting to come in and it's been lovely. Do you know what I mean? It's been really nice there because, you know, it, it might not. You know, you put it out, you don't know how it's going to lie with anyone. But the feedback's been lovely. I've had some lovely emails, honestly, thank you so much. And it's nice when, I'll tell you what is a kind of nice, is when the actual writers say, you know, well done, Tony. I got a lovely email of Ted Kuzmatka. And, you know, it just makes your day. Do you know what I mean? At least you're, you're kind of hitting the right notes there and hitting, you know, making it presentable for them do you know what i mean you don't kind of mess it up for them they're the writers that's you know you're kind of highlighting and showcasing their work and larry do you know what i mean larry oh, i wish i could just reach over the you know the pond there and give this man a big hug do you know what i mean i love him the bit i love him the bit he's the nicest guy you've ever met larry's gonna do a little you know why you should get starship silver's volume two larry Five minutes and 34 seconds on why you should buy Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2. Time begins now. The world was rivets. Mark groaned as he lifted his face from the cold steel deck, tried to focus his eyes. He knew he had to hurry, but couldn't remember why. Pain thudded in his skull, driving away articulated thought. So much blood. Red, we killed the guard, Glaucon and I ran down the corridor, away from the well. Glaucon had been seriously aged in the fight. He limped. He cursed. A piece of dying meat. And he knew it. Hung like grapes in the evening sky, frozen and untwinkling. You could have reached up and picked them, and the trout swam. Snow muffled the world, silenced the dog, silenced... Arturio Icasa de Arana Goldberg, Detective, 3rd grade, United North American Trading Sphere, 3rd District, 4th Prefecture, 2nd Division, Parkdale, had many adventures in his distinguished career, running crooks to ground with an unbeatable combination of instinct and an unstinting devotion, the names of dying sailors washed across Amber Tollister in a sea of rainbow-lit letters. When the ships of Windspur languished in port during the doldrums of summer, the names lay cold blue and exhausted on her skin. Once, Lekabai, who lived in Samoa, was fishing out at sea, when a storm overturned his canoe and brought him half-drowned to an island of rock. The rock rose to form a mountain circled by I paid clouds. the bills for your lifestyle. I funded your every spree. And now your father is dying. And you must listen to me. I can be comed, can I? The doctor has told you. He lied. I shall be dead by tomorrow. No science can hold back that time. The day JFK got shot, well, things got really crazy for Jimmy Struble. Well, for me, too. Hell, for everybody, but mostly for Jimmy. It wasn't like things weren't already screwy for him. The kid walks, late afternoon, all alone he walks the rail lines. Trees push close to the tracks one side. 
On the other, a gravel drop-off leads to more trees. Pine trees cover the hillside down to water, maybe a river, a lake. But something watery is off that side of the tracks, and down there, he can smell Despite all assurances by experts to the contrary, Shepard Crooks suspects his god pod was defective. If it were operating as it should, wouldn't his life be as perfect as the lives of all the happy citizens of the world? Wouldn't his mind and soul be at perfect ease? Wouldn't he exist in a permanent Return state fire? Peace? The colonel ordered, bleeding on the deck of her ship, ferocity raging in her nonetheless controlled voice. The young and untried officer of the deck cried, It won't do any good. There's too many. I say, fire. God damn it. Fire at will. The O.D. ordered the gun bay and then closed his eyes to the coming barrage, as well as against the sight of the exec's mangled corpse. Only minutes left to them. Only seconds. With her eyes shut, chasing the sound of her own bootsteps. This channel in the rock was tight enough to reflect every noise back on itself, and she dodged through the open space between, weeping, crashing one shoulder against a slant in the wall. She fell. She glanced back, forgetting the danger I in this smoking joint on the steps of the public library when a cold wind blew in from no cardinal point but from the top of the night sky, a force of pure perpendicularity that bent the sparsely leaved boughs of the old alder shadowing the steps straight down toward the earth, as if a gigantic Someone directly above were pursing his lips and aiming a long breath directly at the ground. I never thought they'd be looking for me when the media crew came through the restaurant door. I, mean, I didn't even look up from the pot sink. I mean, why you should I? had finished its initial survey of the system when the event took place. Captain Gabe, looking darkly handsome in his official flight uniform, had successfully slotted us into a close polar orbit about the primary star, a greenish F.O. of remarkable appearance. Frida Maxwell, as beautiful as ever, with her blonde hair tied back in a loose ponytail, was preparing for the first flyby of the inner planet. So had the choice of watching TV or having the central heating on. It was a cold and dark November evening, but she chose the TV and pedaled away furiously on the PowerGen bike. She wanted to know what was happening and in the stumbled when my feet seemed to come down on the sidewalk out of nowhere. That The heat was like walking into a wall. For a moment, I couldn't find my balance, and I bumped into somebody. That kept me from falling. It was moonlight time. And the second sun, orange and stately, slipped into the inky depths of the Rorinraca Sea. The first sun had been quenched for well over a tide. Sienna played in the silver pools the tide had left behind, looking for spiraled shells that she could decorate her new room with. Time ends. Five minutes and thirty-four seconds on why you should buy Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2. That guy is a talent. Do you know what I mean? He's a colossal talent. Do you know what I mean? Just to sit there and read every paragraph, every couple of lines from that book, you know what I mean? And whack in there different voices and different, you know what I mean? If that doesn't convince you to get Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2, go to write this time. Please. 
Larry, what can I say? You know, thank you so much. You know, thank you for letting me put that story in there. You know, it was great. And your little bit extra. The extra is just, you know, amazing as well. you kind of the detailed history of how that came about. Larry, you're a bloody star. And please... Do support Starship Sofa. Do get yourself a copy of that. You know, if you want to, send over an, an audio MP3 of, you know, unpacking it and, and, and getting it out there and, you know, enjoying it. Please, that would be, you know, I would love that. You know, hear some kind of audio excitement about volume two. Next up is fiction crawler Matthew Sanborn Smith. Matthew. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Suddenly Semi-Annual Fiction Crawler. This is your favorite of all the Matthew Sanborn Smiths that you know, loading up a barrel full of dazzling fiction to fire it in your face, or your ear, or whatever body part happens to be facing me. You may want to adjust yourself. Pull that up. I've missed you, my little lollipops, and you all look so cute with the sofa fuzz stuck all over your spit-shiny heads. But enough reunionizing. Let me reach into my bag and show you what I brought for you. Fool me once. I generally hate ghost stories and I hate virtual reality stories for the same reason. It's all insubstantial. It's not real. Nothing's on the line. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but if they die in the virtual world, then their bodies will die in the real world. Yeah, whatever. I am firmly snuggled all the way into the back of my seat, not giving a damn. What morons would keep a buggy holodeck that traps and kills people on a naval vessel? I particularly despise the subset of virtual reality stories that deal with people trapped in a video game. However, in the hands of a competent and clever writer, I can come around. Case in pointy is Lavi Tidhar's In Pac-Mandu, which you can find at futurismic.com. It's the future! Duh. And massively multiplayer online role-playing games have grown to take up even more of the cultural landscape than they do today. A team of hotshots from different gaming universes are sent to find out what happened to the Wu expedition, another team of even hotter shots, four of whom are now dead, and a sole survivor who has merely been driven insane. The new team discovers a virtual singularity and fall in. From there on down, it's all rabbit hole, and the discoveries made are fun, fun, fun. I mean, for us, not the characters. Fool me twice. Please fool me twice. Fool me a few more times while you're at it. And then go read Michelangelo's Chisel by Christopher Miller over at the new and spiffy Redstone Science Fiction. I thought I had gone down the wrong road when I started this one. After a few cryptic paragraphs, it began feeling like that boring-ass mainstream type of story written by an academic about academia. In 1969, a college student on his way to a midterm exam that isn't there to be found wanders through a labyrinthine psych building only to stumble across a lecture on the future of computing given by a gross geeky computer scientist. But I trudged through dutifully, for you people, and suddenly something wonderful began to take shape. The narrator's impressions of his fellow audience members, his actions and words, took a turn into the unusual. If you're reading a story and a character acts in an unbelievable way, you may or may not forgive it as being the act of a crazy character, depending on your trust in the author. If a handful of people act in that same unbelievable way, you pretty much give up on that author and his or her dumpy story. But if nearly everybody in the story acts that way, my friend, you slowly begin to feel yourself rising above the mere shell of a tale you thought you were reading and realize that you are experiencing a beautiful thing. I cannot say any more. Just read it. Redstone is off to a very good start. This next story is by one of our very own, Sofanaut Larry Santaro. I've made no secret of my love for Larry's work, and I thank Tony for introducing him to us. His story, The Strega Christabel and the Old Rattler Ken, is a truly Midwestern tale. If you followed Garrison Keeler until he met Ray Bradbury, you'd find Larry standing there at their crossroads reading this story. And he does read this story because this is an audio version of Chapter 2 of his book, Just North of Nowhere, so you not only get Larry's words, but you get his performance, and it is, as we have come to expect, enchanting. The story's 
part of the Old Town Books and Tea podcast, which may be defunct but still exists thanks to internet zombie magic. Larry tells us the story of Ken, a child champion snake catcher who one day goes blind and stays that way for nearly a century. Then a lovely Italian woman drops into his rather pasty white Scandinavian American town and decides the place could use a witch soon after blind Ken nearly sits on her. This isn't one of those stories where you're waiting to find out what happens. It's one where you enjoy what's happening. Just kick back and revel in the language and the characters in their little town. You might even have a yearning to move there. Especially when I mention a naked lady running around her house. The gentleman out there just got on board mentally, not yet realizing that they won't actually be able to see her. Here's another swell audio thingy for you. The guys at SFF Audio have been chronicling the efforts to get all of the Seeing Ear Theater shows online where the public can get at them, and they've turned me on to a lot of good audio drama based on the works of real-life science fiction authors. James Morrow adapted one of his own stories for the group called Daughter Earth. It's the heartwarming family story of a woman who gives birth to a biosphere. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, I mean a tiny planet Earth. I guess it's supposed to be satire, but I enjoy taking things like this at face value and swimming around in the bizarre vibe and until I maybe swallow a little of the mucky water. Little Zenobia has all of her chromosomes, but looks unusually round on the sonograms. Her obstetrician is up in arms, but mom and dad are fine with their one-of-a-kind baby. After delivery, mom remarks that she has a nice, strong cry, and dad adds, and plenty of gravity. Look how her oceans stay put instead of spilling out onto the floor. And after Zenobia's home, we get the line, Honey, we have a colicky biosphere. Lots of stuff here made me cackle with delight, heavy-handed moral or no, and that's pretty much all I need for something that almost resembles happiness if you squint really hard. Next, we fly over to Subterranean Press, or maybe we burrow under for Subterranean Press, for Hanu Rayaniemi's Elegy for a Young Elk. Ooh, I think I pronounced him right, or pretty close. Rayaniemi is one of a handful of newish authors who are going to take hard science fiction far into the 21st century. Unfortunately, his debut novel, The Quantum Thief, isn't going to be released in the U.S. until next year. But in the meantime, the USians among us can still enjoy some of his shorter work online. Once I got past the alcoholic talking bear, Elegy for a Young Elk drew me in quickly with its rather poetic descriptions of what I can only assume is Finland's wilderness and the post-singularity earth it posits. Our hero, Kasonen, is a bit of a booze-addled chicken head, staying behind on Earth and living off the land while most of humanity have transcended and moved away on godlier business. His divine wife comes down to see him, tells him she and her butterfingered god pals drop something they didn't want to drop into a city where only old-fashioned humans can go. All Kasonen asks for as payment is the return of his gift for poetry, which he destroyed while pickling his brain. So we're off on a quest into a land of nanotechnology, quantum computerized everything, and harsh reminders of the family past that Kasonen has not been able to drink into oblivion. The land is beautiful here, the technology wondrous, the perils deadly, and if that's not enough for you, there are lock-picking squirrels and a pigeon man. From the stories I've read, Rihanna Yemi has earned my trust so that I'll pick up whatever of his work comes my way without question and give it a go. There aren't a lot of people out there writing like that, so pay attention to this guy if you're not already. Now the big finish. Here's another one of those guys who are writing like that. I suspect some of you are getting sick and tired of me singing the praises of Paolo Bacigalupi as this is at least the fourth bit of fiction to have crawled into my little sofa escapade here. But settle down with a nice greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray and sicken a little more and listen this one last time before you quit me because this is the story that made me a Bacigalupi fan for life. The story is Yellow Card Man and the only reason I didn't tell you about it sooner is that it disappeared from the net for a while. But now with the release of Bacigalupi's first novel, The Wind-Up Girl, his publisher Nightshade Books is making it available as a free PDF, along with The Calorie Man, since those stories take place in the world of The Wind-Up Girl. In fact, Yellow Card Man could be seen as a direct prequel. I warn you now, Apollo has a reputation for grim stories, and this is one of his very grimmest. The story begins with Tron, 
not the stuck in the video game Tron. I hated that movie for reasons stated earlier, but T-R-A-N-H, Tron. The story begins with Tron, a former Chinese-Malayan shipping magnate, waking up from a nightmare of his former life into the nightmare of his current one. He and thousands like him are refugees in Thailand, having fled from an Islamic revolution which killed Tron's family and destroyed everything he had. Living in Thai slums now as a third-rate citizen, Tron struggles to find work and to survive where his life means nothing to those in power, and he can only envy the embezzling employee he once fired as the man has a good job and seems to mock him in this twist of fate. Fate and luck and karma dance around each other in this story, as they do in The Wind-Up Girl, but also, and this is the main thing, there are a lot of really shitty human beings in here. This story knocked me on my ass when I first read it. It'll stick with you, believe me. Go read it up. That's it. I got six. That's all there is. Tony's gonna lay down the links for all that goodness for your clicking pleasure. Until we meet again, maybe years from now, who knows. This is the delectable Matthew Sanborn Smith wishing you scads of eager groupies, perfectly cooked eggs, and a little off the top of that sofa fuzzy head of yours. See you later, crocodiles. The man's right on my wavelength, you know, Matt. He's picked them stories there, and like I say, we've got... Next, is it next week, the week after, at the end of the month show, we've got a James Morrow story. I've got an interview with James Morrow, and it's Larry that's narrating it as well. Do you know, it is, we're kind of highly tuned, Matt, myself and you, thank you so much. Listen out for another fiction crawler, whenever, I've no idea. (laughs) Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes from Pat Cadigan, who actually, you know, as I say before, is in Starships Over Stories. Volume 2. Pat was lovely to donate a story called Jimmy, and this is a story called Life on Earth. Narration today comes from Cheryl Martin. Cheryl Martin is a professional narrator. I'll put a link on to Cheryl's site. A great range of voices Cheryl does. What an amazing narrator. Adult, young, senior, the whole kind of whack there. Please pop over to Cheryl Martin's site and have a look. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present... Life on Earth, by Pat Cadigan. The third time Mary tells me that all the people and the nice cars and the expensive clothes are dead, I believe her. First, because Mary knows things like this for sure. And second, because whatever anyone tells you three times is true. But especially Mary. We were watching the regular morning inbound rush hour from the freeway graveyard, where highways go to die in the city. Every city has a freeway graveyard, Mary says. I'd have to take her word for this. The freeway graveyard is the only place I can remember living in. Don't believe me? Wait around. I'll tell you two more times, and then you'll know for sure. Or you can just ask Mary. She's a living truth detector. I am not so gifted, so I have to distrust everyone except Mary. But this thing about the dead people... It's one of those things that Mary says are so thoroughly and consistently true at any given or random moment that they are never falsehoods, no matter who tells you. I know Mary finds this reassuring. Me? It scares. Just you think about it. If there are things so true that not even the devil himself can lie about them, how can us mere mortals face them and live through it? Most don't, or don't want to. Mary says as the traffic inches along the exit ramp in front of us. How do you think all these poor bastards died? Damn, I've done it again, talking out loud and not knowing it. 
I'd have said a plague, I tell her honestly. Mary laughs, shaking her fuzzy, dirty gray head. It'd have to have been a truth plague, she says, and there's never going to be one of those. The truth ain't catching. But something that's killed so many people just by their getting exposed to it. Mary shakes her head again. Think of it as a natural disaster. Earthquakes can kill a lot of people, but not because they caught it from each other. Oh, I say. All right, a truth quake. I can see how that would be lethal on a grand scale. When I say this to Mary, she shrugs. Some people might not think that's so bad. Hell, look where they go when they die. She points at the cars, luxury sedan with air conditioning, real leather upholstery, and a top-of-the-line in-dash CD player. Plenty of people think that stuff is to die for. If that's true, the to die for thinking doesn't survive into the afterlife. You can tell just by the looks on all the dead people's faces that none of it, not the luxury, not the upholstery, not the CD players, is making them happy. I think of what Mary actually said: "Hell, look where they go when they die." Mary often tells the truth without even noticing. It's a side effect of the gift she has. I can't get over the feeling that this could endanger her, but I know if I told her. She'd say I was worried over nothing. Mary thinks that most people don't know the truth when they hear it. She could be right about that. Okay, given her track record, she probably is right. But most people doesn't mean everybody or nobody. You never know when there's somebody listening who isn't most people. Mary says I worry too much. I think what that really means is there's too much to worry about. That's for sure. While Mary knows what's true and what isn't, she doesn't know everything. Mary often said it would be a bad mistake to think that knowing what's true meant knowing everything. So when I ask her what possible reason could there be for us living people to be rattling around among the dead, she cheerfully admits she doesn't know. But she has theories. We rattle around, as you put it, among them, but not of them. This strongly suggests a purpose for us that they, the dead, can know nothing of. When she talks like that, I can see very clearly the university professor she says she used to be. Her expertise was a mix of comparative religion and philosophy, or maybe it was comparative philosophy and religion. The two seem to be very close, except one of them gives you a higher being to take the responsibility for a lot of stuff, good and bad. I like the idea of a higher being, but I can't get any further than that. I mean, it's a nice idea, but too improbable for me to think about without laughing out loud. But that's just me. Mary says the dead all believe in the higher being as a reality, even those that say they don't. Deep down, Mary says, and of course it would have to be because being dead, deep down is where they are. Deep down. They're all sure that there's somebody watching them, noting everything they do, and occasionally stepping in to make things turn out one way or another. Coincidence is a big thing with them. Even a little coincidence gets them all lathered up. Some of them get so aroused they're seeing signs and wonders for months after one little accident. Clinical paranoids, I say, remembering something, but not very well. Mary laughs. The clinicalist of clinical and paranoidist of paranoids, dear. If it's true, 
She'll say it twice more before the day is out. But I'm not concerned about keeping track. It makes sense. I mean to say, you know, I'm sitting on a chunk of concrete or paving next to Mary and watching the dead start another day in the afterlife. And I know in my heart they have to be sick in their minds as well as dead. Okay, not all of them. Some of them have to be doing something crucially important. That's just the law of averages, which, like the law of gravity, is more useful than not. But all of them? All these dead people in all these cars laid end-to-end on strips of roadway? What else is this but the futility of death? I'm afraid to die. Mary says she can understand that, because she died a couple of times herself and didn't much like it. I can't imagine Mary dead. She's too alive. Her skin is softly weather-beaten, like quality leather, and you can see that if you touch her cheek, it will be warm and supple. Her hair, she says, lives a life of its own. Up close, you can see its wiry stuff. I think you could sew on buttons and mend rips with it. My hair is limp, so I keep it very short. Mary trims it down with a manicure scissors every few weeks, so it never gets more than an inch long. She says she wouldn't do that to most other women, except that she likes looking at the shape of my head. She also says that my skin is nicer than hers, but I don't think so. Next to Mary, I'm greasy feeling, like a shaved bear that fell into an oil slick. Mary says that any other greasy people she's ever known have been some pretty icky types, but I'm different. She says whatever my skin secretes reminds her of cocoa butter and almond oil, and that if a cosmetics company ever found out about me, they'd probably skin me alive and make me into wrinkle cream. I'm goddamn lucky, she says, that I'm not a seal or a civet cat. Not that you have to be either one to get skinned alive, she reminds me. People get skinned alive all the time. Lots of people. Right while we're sitting here watching the transmigration of souls in their middle wombs, whole buildings full of people are having the hide peeled or dissolved right off their bodies. This is not my favorite conversation, but it seems to be important to Mary. You'd think no one would survive that kind of treatment, she goes on, folding her arms and glaring at a big Cadillac with only one person in it. It does kill people, but not right away. Not the first time. I never knew anyone that died after the first skinning. Usually it takes three or four times before it's fatal for most people. Some go through half a dozen and live. You'd think someone would have mercy on them, give up and set them free, or just put them out of their misery. But no, poor bastards have to endure it over and over again. Every day their skin grows back, looking just the same so you'd never know unless you knew to begin with. Comes the night, they're herded to their beds, tucked in and strapped down. When all the lights go out, then the skinners come. Thin as a piece of paper, they slide under the door like a final notice bill, float up in the air and land on some poor bastard either strapped down in a bed or so drugged it's the same difference. Skinners soak through the sheets and the cheap pajamas right down to the flesh. Some scream, some talk and pray, some can't make a sound. But the worst is the ones who like it. Those are the worst of all, the saddest of the sad. I was lucky I only had to go through it once. Mary blinks with satisfaction. One time was all it took for me to know what to do. After the first night, I spent all day with my skin growing back, and then that night I made sure I slept under the bed, and by God it worked. I never got skinned again. 
Such a simple solution. You wouldn't have thought it would be so simple, but it was. Why? Because Skinners are stupid. Is that the damnedest thing, or is it? It is. I don't like this conversation, but I have to admit, it really is the damnedest thing. Some of the people in the cars are starting to look familiar. I find myself smiling at them like friends, or at least acquaintances. A few of them seem like more than that, like people I actually do know, or did know before they died. A couple of them have this something about them that makes me like them. I mean, feel affection for them. Not as much as I feel for Mary, but I can't shake the idea that if I did know them, I'd be that fond of them, and the feeling would be mutual. These are the ones I've started actually looking out for, and I miss them if I don't see them. I wonder if they've gotten so used to the sight of me and Mary having our morning time on our usual block of broken paving that they feel like something's missing out of the day if they don't see us. Mary has told me that emotions and attachments are different for the dead. They don't so much go out of their ways to get attached as they just have stuff attach itself to them as they move through each day. Death, Mary assures me, is the ultimate predictability. All dead people know exactly what they'll be doing moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, she says. If there's any variation, it will be something that's already been scheduled for them, so it isn't really a true variation the way us living creatures think of it. The idea of living like that makes me feel like I'm going to throw up. Well, of course it would, Mary says. It's not living. It's not even dying. It's death. Only the dead can stand it. But how, I wonder? Because that's what being dead is. This only makes me more afraid to die. It sounds like being turned to stone and wanting to scream, but not knowing that's what you want to do and not even knowing what screaming is. What could any of these people have done that was so bad they deserve this? It's not so bad if you're dead, Mary says, chuckling. Worse and worse. I can't imagine feeling that way. Uncertainty is the only way. Uncertainty is life. All the uncertainty, even the uncertainty as to whether I'm thinking silently or talking out loud. I choose life. I choose life. You get more emotional than I do watching the morning transmigration, Mary says. The traffic is thinning. Going faster now, fewer faces and fewer familiar ones. Kitchen's open another half hour, and it's donut day. Mary has a dead friend at a crazy glazy who stashes the stale leftovers for us instead of throwing them in the dumpster. Very convenient. No dumpster diving and no losing the best of it to animals, although I really don't mind sharing. Animals are alive too, which makes them sort of kindred in a spiritual way. The kitchens, on the other hand, are actually cafeterias, dining halls operated by the dead for the living, for reasons understood more easily by the dead and a few of the living with intellects more agile and less squeamish than mine. I asked Mary if she understood it. She told me it made the dead feel better about their dead selves, but admitted she wasn't really sure why. That was all right with me. You don't want to be sure about too much. You could wake up dead. Mary's dead friend at the donut shop died young. Every time I see her, I think maybe she isn't quite dead yet. Mary agrees that it's possible her friend may well be in a kind of limbo, neither completely alive nor truly dead. 
Apparently, you can linger for years in such a state, decades even. I think after even just half a decade, you might as well be dead. Mary says that's why you find such cases living and working among the dead rather than with the living. They're going to die anyway, so they act like they are. I wish Mary's friend would decide to live instead. She always looks to me like she was alive a minute before I got there, and if I'd gotten there even thirty seconds sooner, I'd have been able to save her. I don't actually know how to do any such of a thing, but I have this idea that if I were ever in that situation, I'd know instinctively what action to take. Anyway, it's sad to see a dead person so young. Her skin is much darker than Mary's, and her hair is perfectly black all over. Her hands are sensitive, quick, and careful. They touch bits of her work clothes when she talks to us. She talks mostly to Mary. As young as she is, she's known Mary a long time. I can tell because she has a personal pet name for Mary, a nickname. You wouldn't think Mary was a word long enough to have a nickname, but it does, a tiny one. Ma. We create our own reality. Why not create the reality you've always dreamed of? Get started tonight at our free lecture workshop. Live your life your way. Complimentary refreshments plus free gift voucher for the first 50 attendees. 6.30 p.m. Conference Room A, Municipal Hall. Complimentary refreshments, Mary says thoughtfully after reading the ad twice over. She folds the newspaper without thinking and hands it back to me. I unfold it and try to find the article I'd been reading before Mary noticed the ad and took the paper from me. Could be lukewarm cocktail sausages wrapped in that kind of dough that comes in a tube. Could be microwave quesadillas. Could be a mound of donut holes from Crazy Glazy in an urn of old machine oil passing us coffee. She smiles and offers me another crawler out of the waxed paper bag her friend gave us at the back door of the shop. She also gave us a box with a bunch of broken cookies and some stale crescent rolls. Mary and I are having our breakfast picnic on the air conditioning unit, which will not be in use today. The weather has been getting cooler. Autumn is almost over. I know winter comes next, but that's all I know. I don't remember living through a winter. Perhaps I'm too young. Maybe the last winter happened before I was alive. Or maybe I'm from a place where the seasons last a much longer period of time. I haven't discussed this with Mary. I'm nervous about bringing it up, but I don't really know why. Suddenly, Mary grabs my hand and slaps half a crawler into it. I wish you wouldn't do that, she says. Are you sure you're not prone to petty mal? I shrug. No one ever told me one way or the other. Mary is pretty good about what she calls my moments, when I get caught up in what I'm thinking and forget everything else. It's not that I black out, just that I'm concentrating. Mary says she doesn't mind, just as long as I'm not driving a car or performing brain surgery. I'm not yearning to do either. Ma? Mary's friend has come out the back door carrying another wax paper bag. She puts it down in the A.C. between us and gives me her usual troubled frown. It's getting cold. Mary mutters something about not needing a weatherman to blow. Ma, you can't spend winter on the street. You'll die. 
Mary glances at me with a sour smile. That's the pot calling the kettle a very dark color. Her young friend looks annoyed. Ma, I am not dead. Yet, I can't help adding. Mary gives me a dirty look. Et to you? Last week you weren't sure you believed me about the afterlife. This week you're making pronouncements. Mary doesn't sound so much annoyed as amused. It wasn't that I didn't believe you, I tell her. It's just that I learn best by repetition. Mary nods. If only everyone else in the world could learn something merely by being told it three times. She gives her friend a sideways look. This is not a life, the friend says, gesturing at us and our breakfast picnic. Mary makes a broader gesture that somehow includes Crazy Glazy and the rest of the world around it. And that is? The friend turns her attention to me. If you learn best by repetition, she says slowly, what have you learned from living on the streets day in and day out with my mother? This sounds like it could be one of those trick questions you can't really answer, but I give it some thought anyway. I'm still alive, I say finally, just guessing. The friend is about to say something when someone leans out the back door and calls something that makes her hurry back inside. Let's go to the library, I suggest after a long moment. It's indoors. Mary frowns. Maybe. You think it might not be indoors anymore? I'm surprised. That would be very strange, even in the world of the dead. No, it's not that. Mary allows herself a moment to laugh at me. I'm not sure the library is safe anymore. Why not? When we were there yesterday, I thought I saw a Skinner hiding in a book. That's bad. Why didn't you say anything? I ask, getting upset. Mary looks ashamed. I didn't want to scare you, at least not before I'd had time to review it in my memory. I wasn't sure. I had to think about it. Now you're sure? She hesitates. Pretty sure. Another pause. Of course, if I did see one, I saw only one. The two of us could probably take it, kick its paper-thin ass, tear it into little tiny pieces. And then we'd have proof, I say? Proof? That they exist. The Skinners. We could show everyone the evidence. No one would ever have to get skinned alive again. Mary stares at me like I said we should do something really crazy, like eat it for dinner. You think anyone who was in a position to do anything about it actually would? Why wouldn't they? I ask. She grabs my shoulder and shakes it hard. Why do you think, you little brain-damaged idiot? She grabs the front of my shirt and pulls me practically nose to nose with her. What have I been telling you? Three times I told you. Do I have to tell you three times a day now before you can remember? Because they're dead, I say, feeling like I probably am brain damaged. Too brain damaged to be as smart as an idiot. The dead don't do anything. Right, the dead don't do anything. Why not? Because they're dead. The dead don't have intention. The dead don't have ambition. The dead don't have free will. Is any of the sinking in? Her eyes look like cloud-colored whirlpools. It occurs to me that this must be what you'd see if you'd look down into twin tornadoes from above them. But I'm damned if I know why I'm thinking something like that. I also don't know what being damned is, or if I'm too stupid even for that. 
Mary lets go and wipes my cheeks with her thumb. Oh, don't cry. You make me feel like I'm a bad person, and I'm just trying to look out for you. If something happened to me, you shouldn't be helpless. The idea makes me cry more. Do you think you might die again? I blubber. I'm not planning to, Mary says, dabbing a napkin under my nose and making a disgusted face. But that's the thing about death. It comes unexpectedly, sneaks up behind you when you're not looking. The next thing you know, she jerks her chin at something behind me and I jump, thinking death actually did sneak up behind me. But it's just someone else who works at Crazy Glazy coming out the back door with a big black garbage bag. This one's older than Mary's friend, and she looks more bored than anyone else I've ever seen. Maybe she died young, too. Mary's young friend will probably look like this after a while. That's a shame. The dead don't have anything to look forward to. But then they wouldn't know how to look forward to it if they did. No ambition. Merrily gently pulls my head around to face her again. Okay, you see what I'm talking about? I nod and Mary wipes my cheek again. I'll try to remember better. Good. Now, about that library. She is stashing our leftovers in her tote bag. Are you brave enough to go there, knowing there might be a Skinner hiding somewhere inside? I don't hesitate. Yes, like you said, we could take it. We could. Mary gets up off the AC unit and tucks her tote bag firmly under her left arm. But don't go looking for trouble either. We don't have to take it if it doesn't bother us. What if it bothers someone else, I ask. Like who? One of the dead? Mary gives me a look. I get down off the unit and brush bits of crawler glaze off the front of my jacket before I zip it up. Then it must be looking for us, I say. Otherwise, why would it be there? Good question, Mary says. Maybe it just likes to read. The people at the library aren't happy to see us. They never are. I don't know who they would be happy to see. Maybe no one. Maybe they want to be alone with all the books. Mary goes over to the newspapers and settles down with something from far away, where the news is, she says, different and almost interesting, even though it's all about the dead. I wander along the magazine section. Reading is intermittent with me. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes I manage to make enough sense of the words to get a general idea, which could turn out to be wrong. Could be something about my vision. When it comes to words, I don't always see them clearly. I have the very strong feeling that I learned reading for a specific reason that was out of the ordinary. I think there's no reading where I come from. Just pictures. Today, I can read if I want to make the effort. Otherwise, the words are nothing but marks I can see past to the pictures and not even notice. If there are pictures, like on magazine covers, inside, some of them have pictures and some don't. Or rather, some don't intend to have pictures. But sometimes the marks, the words, make shapes that almost mean something to me. I find this disturbing, however, I'd rather see pictures that are meant to be pictures. Mary says words or pictures, they're all just musings of the dead, and this almost meaning I get is just wishful thinking on my part. Now, if she could only tell me what I'm wishing, I wouldn't feel so lost. But, as Mary often reminds me, she doesn't know everything, just true things. It occurs to me that this also means Mary doesn't know everything that's true, either. 
This is probably an important distinction. I wish I knew why. My gaze falls on a picture of a woman in odd clothes. Her face is strongly colored, and she stares as if she knew, when the picture was taken, that I would come along and look at it, and she wanted to be looking right back at me. I'm glad she's not here in person. God knows what kind of disposition she's got. Even the library people don't look that hostile toward me. A voice whispers in my ear. Put that down and turn around very slowly. Something in my chest drops an impossibly long way in a half second before I recognize the voice as Mary's. What's wrong? I whisper. Just turn around, slowly. She pulls me around by my elbow so I can see the man sitting at a round table a little ways from where Mary was reading her newspaper. There is a book open in front of him, and he would appear to be reading it, except something that looks like a rag is pressed against his face, covering him from hairline to neck. It's colorless, opaque, and hugs the contours of his features so closely you might almost think it was painted on. Is that a Skinner? I whisper to Mary. Yes and no, she says. It looks like a Skinner, but it's a lot smaller, and he should be screaming. Maybe it's a new kind. I remember something I read or heard somewhere. Maybe they've evolved. Mary looks at me suspiciously. Evolved from what? That's got to be a trick question, but Mary doesn't realize it. I guess even the best of us can play tricks on ourselves without knowing it. Then something occurs to me. Maybe it's dead, I say. Mary starts to tell me I'm crazy and then cuts off. She looks at the guy and the thing on his face, then back at me. She does this two or three times. I never thought of that, she says. Everything does die, Skinner's included. They'd have to have an afterlife, just like anything else. The man at the table is no longer focused on his book. If he could see anything through the thing on his face, it would be staring directly at us. I can only hope that underneath the Skinner, if that's what it is, his face is not as hostile as that woman in the picture I was looking at. It scares me to think he might look that hostile, and I don't even know it. So here you are, he says to us and gets up. Back off, dead man, Mary says. It's no good hounding me. I choose life. I choose life. I can't help staring at Mary. It isn't the first time I've heard her say something I was thinking earlier, but it never fails to surprise me when she does. The man looks around, or he looks like he's looking around, with his face still covered, and he seems to see the library people at the checkout desk who are watching us with big, unhappy eyes. I didn't think they could get any unhappier, but there they are. I wonder briefly if anyone ever got so unhappy they died. It's no good hounding her, he calls over to them. Does this mean anything to any of you? Then he shakes himself in a funny way, and the thing on his face gets, well, not tighter, exactly, but thinner in some way, as if it's sinking onto, into his face. Never mind, he says to the library people. I misunderstood. He smooths his hands over his forehead, and I can see his skin texture through the covering. This isn't healthy for either of us, he adds, turning back to Mary and me. You've got that concept, don't you? Mary glances at me. Which one of us are you talking to, she asks. 
To be honest, the man says, I don't know. Well, you sit down and think about it, Mary says, and we'll go powder our noses. This is Mary's euphemism for going to the toilet, which the library people don't like us to do. But instead of heading for the bathroom, Mary takes me right out the front door as fast as we can go without running. Half an hour later, we realize we left her tote bag behind. I'm caught in a feedback loop, Mary says for the sixth or seventh time. I have no idea whether this means what she says is twice as true as it would be normally, or whether six times cancels things out and the seventh would be starting over again on the truth side. I can't decide if we should go back to see her or not. She means her friend at Crazy Glazy, I know. She's trying to decide if we should demand more food while Mary yells at her for sending someone after us. Either or both of us. What Mary's not sure of is if her friend did send the man, and if she did, did she also know about Skinner's, or is that a coincidence? I remind Mary that she usually laughs at people who read too much into coincidence. Sure I do, Mary says, too serious to be annoyed at me, because they're dead. Coincidence doesn't mean anything for the dead, but we're alive. When you're alive, everything means something. I have a moment of mild enlightenment, to wit, only the dead can be clinically paranoid. I just wish I could remember where I got that term, clinically paranoid. It doesn't feel like something related to my true nature. On the other hand, I don't know anything about my true nature to begin with, so I can't really be sure of what's related to it or not. Mary shakes me. Come on, we've been walking in circles for two hours. Surely you must have some suggestion by now. Am I supposed to? I say, surprised. You've been thinking for so long, you must have come up with something. I look around. We are on a block of storefronts, some boarded up, some not. It looks familiar, but there are a lot of places around the city that look exactly like this, although I can tell them apart more easily when I can read. I decide to try reading something, anything, thinking that it could inspire a new idea either in me or from Mary. The nearest storefront has a lot of tattered scraps of things, almost as thin as what was on that man's face in the library. Maybe they attached themselves to the boards over the front window in the same way, and somebody felt the need to try tearing them off. But there is one that looks as if it stuck itself up there only a minute before I noticed it. For a moment, it looks like random marks. Then something shifts, like a lens focusing, and I see the words. We create our own reality. Why not create the reality you've always dreamed of? Get started tonight at our free Lecture Slant Workshop. Slash, Mary says, Lecture Slash Workshop. But never mind, you did good. Let's see if we can find another. She starts pulling me along the sidewalk. Another what? I ask, looking back at the storefront. I'd like to read the whole thing. It sounds familiar. Another poster or advertisement? three times and we'll know it's true. But I thought you already knew what was true, I say. And just how the hell do you think I find out, Mary says, impatient. I don't know, I tell her. I don't even have a theory. Mary pulls me along faster, tugging me through crosswalks against the lights so that the cars get close enough for me to see the dead drivers and passengers mouthing something at us as we dodge out of the way. They look familiar, same people? If they are, they've been locked in their cars since the morning migration. 
No wonder they're so unhappy. But why would they be locked in their cars all day while others go free, at least until the evening exodus? Are they being punished for something? How could it be possible to punish dead people, and why? This is the afterlife. They're dead. It's over. What's over, Mary says. We are standing on the corner next to a taxi. The driver has just gotten out and shouted something at us. Now he is getting back in and trying to rejoin the flow of traffic. What? I say. Mary grabs me by the back of my neck and points my face at a sign on the roof of the taxi. Hey, if he doesn't want people pointing at ads on his cab, he shouldn't have them. Sore head, Mary adds, shouting as the taxi pulls away. Just before it disappears, I catch a glimpse of We Create Our Own Reality. The third time someone tries to give us money while we sit on the steps of the building called Municipal Hall, I suggest to Mary that maybe we should just accept it as true. Three times being the charm, I say, hoping I sound wise. It's only good for dead things, Mary says, but if you want some, take some. I won't stop you. I have a thought. It won't kill me, will it? Mary laughs a little. Nah, it won't kill you. She laughs a little more. I can tell she's not laughing at me, but I wish she'd let me in on the joke, even if I probably wouldn't understand it. Because communication is the essence of life itself, I hear myself say out loud. And I mean, I can hear myself as if I'm hearing someone else speak, or as if someone else did speak only with my voice. Do you have a mirror? I ask Mary. She shakes her head, making an irritated face. She's thinking about something important, and she doesn't want me to interrupt her train of thought. I feel irritated in response. How does she know that my asking for a mirror might not be directly related to her terribly important thoughts? It could be. Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened today. The day starts fading away earlier than it did yesterday. By next week, it will be completely dark when the evening exodus begins. Mary has mentioned that it will also be dark for most of the morning migration. I don't see why. Whether it's day or night doesn't affect either. They happen at the same time no matter what. It seems like a needless change. It's got nothing to do with the dead, Mary says, leading me up the stairs. It's the life of the universe around us, going on as usual. The universe has its reasons. The dead have their routine. It's the cycle of life. Look for conference room A. Mezzanine, says someone, making us both jump. A dead man in a uniform that is passing as a symbol of authority. What about it? Mary asks him, suspicious. Conference room A is on the mezzanine level up those stairs. He points to our left, and we turn to look at a staircase curving up to a semi-open balcony-style area. Thank you, Mary says stiffly. Denada, when you're done creating your own reality, be sure to come back down the same stairs so I can let you out again, the dead man says. He's smiling in a way that isn't true, as if that isn't really his face. I wonder if he's really dead. And if he's not, what possible reason could he have to pretend? The notion is too absurd. I must be stupider than I thought. Why do we have to be locked in, Mary asks. You don't, really, the man says. It's just that we're keeping winter hours. Building closes at seven. Your meeting won't finish till after eight. So we have to let you out when you're done. 
So nobody can come in after seven, Mary says. Only if they phoned ahead to say they have to come late. We put their names on a list. You got a friend who's going to be late? No, Mary says. I just wanted to see if you knew the answer. You and about a million other people, the man says. Of course I know all the answers. That's why I work as a security guard, so people can come in here and quiz me. No, that's definitely not a true smile. If I get ten more right, I can go home early. He points at the stairs. Don't forget, come down the same way. He leans in and lowers his voice. Don't get any ideas about finding some out-of-the-way spot to bed down in for the night, because I have a good memory, and I'll notice if you don't come out with the rest of them. Mary starts to say something angry, but he puts up his hands and steps back. Just giving you fair warning, ladies, so you can't say I didn't tell you. Tell me two more times, I say. He isn't smiling now. Have your friend tell you. He walks away. Mary doesn't tell me anything as she pulls me toward the stairs. Conference room A has many more chairs than people, and I get the feeling it's going to stay that way. The chairs are all facing the front of the room where there is a podium and a microphone. That's all. Otherwise, the room is bare. Not even one of the posters about how we create our own reality. But just after we arrive, some people in white uniforms wheel in some long tables and line them up in the back. They leave and return with a couple of tall rolling carts with plastic-wrapped trays of food. Fresh fruit, vegetables and dip, slices of meat and cheese. Mary and I look around the room and then at each other. There is more than enough here for everyone a few times over. We'll be packing a few lunches. This reminds me that I haven't eaten since breakfast, and I reach for the nearest edible. My fingertips barely brush the plastic wrap. Someone is gripping my wrist. That's for later, during the break. The woman holding my hand reminds me of the one on the magazine, but her expression is much friendlier. By then, we'll have coffee to go with it. Decaf, I ask her, to keep her attention on me. Mary is snagging a handful of apple slices and shoving them in her coat pocket. And regular, the woman says, patting the back of my hand and letting go. She turns to look at Mary, who stares back at her with defiant innocence. What, Mary says, you gonna frisk me? She holds out her arms. Knock yourself out. Maybe later, the woman says, and walks up to sit in the front row of seats. Three other people sit down nearby, one in the same row and two in the row behind. One of the people in the white uniforms ambles over and stands next to us, adjusting the plastic wrap over the food. Just sit down, he says in a low voice. The sooner they get started, the sooner they let us uncover the grub. Mary and I sit down at about the halfway point on the center aisle. Two more people have come in. That's a total of eight, including the woman, and eleven if you count the ones in white uniforms. It seems like that's going to be all, but then suddenly about half a dozen people come in together and take seats in the front row. A few minutes later, I hear the door close and a man walks over to the podium. We create our own reality, he says. Does anyone disagree with that? While he waits, he looks out over the audience as if every chair were filled. Very odd. Funny how I never get an answer, he says. Even though I know none of you agrees with me, not one person in this room agrees with me that we create our own reality. The light in the room is that harsh, merciless fluorescent 
that hides nothing and makes the dead look as dead as they really are. But it's changing. The light is changing. Or my eyes are. My vision is not blurring exactly, but there's something extra in it, like I'm trying to see through cloudy water. Can you move? I don't know who's asking, but the answer is no. A dark line cuts horizontally through the center of my visual field. It begins pushing the cloudy top half upward while the bottom half darkens and sharpens in some way so that I can perceive every single edge of every single object around me. How about now? Can you move? I feel myself float forward and I realize that I have disengaged from the body I've been walking around in. Good. We were afraid you were dead. I choose life. I choose life, whispers someone behind me. Mary. Sorry. My vision settles down. Now I can see the man behind the podium much more clearly. The thing on his face is talking to me. You can't stay here, the thing says. You must fulfill your nature. You must migrate. Only the dead migrate, Mary whispers behind me. The upper cloudy half of my vision shudders, threatening to descend and take over again. Then it's gone, like a rolled-up shade. I'm a skinner, I say. I say. I'm remembering now, two occupied beds in a dark, quiet room. No, skinner is a damage symbol from that creature you damaged. The thing means Mary. I didn't damage her originally, but I made it worse. It wasn't intentional. I actually thought touching her perception would help her accept what she saw. The concept of migration is not unknown in this world, after all. Their own migratory creatures have places where they stop to rest. But I failed to help her connect the idea of migratory creatures with what she saw wrap itself around the woman in the other hospital bed, the woman I have just disengaged from. The part of me that touched Mary's perception is still entangled, trapped, That wasn't intentional either, not at first, but now Mary wouldn't let go even if she knew how. We are of the cooperative element, the thing in front of the man says. We migrate and renew. This is a stopover, not a destination. Resume the journey. It comes to me in one perfect picture that would never need words. Migration. The tidal pull is so distant that I've never seen the source, but so powerful that it gives me, us, purpose. We stopped here to rest. None of the creatures called people should have seen us, but some did. We may never know how or why, but the warning to others has gone out. Do not stop here. It isn't safe. Meanwhile, the rescue efforts continue. I'm not the first or the last to go astray. Don't leave me to die, Mary whispers. To exist alone, she means, to live without that bit of me tangled up in her perception. She has never been anything but solitary inside until I came. Now she thinks she will die if I go. But that's the only thing I can do. In our entangled state, neither of us will last much longer. She has her own migration, in a way, that she must complete. Odd to think of a state of existence where migration actually has an end. I realize that I'm reforming. The part of me that has been entangled in Mary is disengaging more and more. Soon I will be part of the migration again, rather than a solitary whole. But Mary is still not giving up. 
She wants to keep the awareness that came with our entanglement. It's crippled and distorted, but she wants to keep it anyway. It's so much bigger than the old world she knew. I choose life. I choose life. I choose this life. Did Mary say that, or did I? What can you possibly do on this level of existence, says the thing Mary calls a skinner. There's no migration, no change. The life you say you choose is inconceivably short to you in your original state, and nothing comes after. I realize I don't believe that. I don't believe it because Mary doesn't. I won't believe it even if I do leave. Entanglement. I can leave Mary's perception, but Mary can't leave mine. When my vision clears, I am lying on the floor looking up at some very worried faces, including Mary's. She's not drunk, Mary is saying. She just fainted from hunger. From hunger, someone says, as if that were a completely unknown idea. We skipped lunch today, Mary says in her, you got a problem with that voice? We're very busy with our careers. She helps me sit up and starts pushing apple slices into my mouth. They taste so good they hurt. Someone says this seems like a good time for a break anyway. Mary gets me up on a chair and tells me to wait. She'll go fix me a sandwich or six. The guy from the podium stands over me, looking unhappy. There's nothing on his face, but I know it was the guy from the library. I also know that after tonight, I won't be seeing him again. It's just a fluke I'm seeing him now, because in truth, he has already left. Elvis, I say to Mary, has left the building. I hope you remember to take the right staircase, she says. You and your friend are just here for the food, aren't you? He says, and then looks confused, as if he didn't mean to say that at all. I keep thinking I'll find people open to new suggestions, he says tiredly, but it always turns out they're in it for the food. Well, don't give up, I say. It's a big world. You'll find the right people. I don't know why I'm telling him this, It's more like I have to say it than he has to hear it. I look up at him, and for a moment, I have a mental image of him with a cloth over his face. Then Mary is pulling me to my feet. All she has done today is pull me here and pull me there. I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my life with her pulling me from place to place. Come on, she says, and shoves the sandwich into my left hand. Let them create their own reality. We'll go find something else. What? I say. I don't know, Mary says cheerfully. I don't think she's ever been this happy. I don't know, but I can't wait to see it. Me neither. Me neither. Third and last time. Me neither. There you go. Pat, thank you so much. One day I might actually get to have a little drink with... My good friend Pat Cadigan. Pat, thank you. And Cheryl, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get some more narrations off your good self. As always to every narrator. <laughs> anyway, Amy H. Sturgis comes in with her genre, looking back at genre history this week. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Well, almost. First, I have a quick personal invitation. It's October, my favorite month, and that means Halloween, my favorite holiday. And for the last several years, I have been 
hosting an online celebration of all things Halloween at my blog. So I would invite you to come by my website, amyhsturgis.com, and click on blog. And there you will find daily posts throughout the month of October, sharing images and links, but most importantly, classic texts, speculative fiction, gothic fiction, that help us set the stage for the Halloween spirit. So I hope you will join me there. And now, for a look back into genre history. Considering the fact that it is October, I thought it appropriate to shine a light into one of the shadowed, dark corners of the past and bring out a Halloween-appropriate subject. And so I'd like to talk today about a classic work, an important work, an often overlooked work in the development and history of the vampire literature tradition, one that is obviously quite alive and well, or at least undead and well, today. Just where did the vampire begin? In Western literature, it first appeared in poems such as The Vampire in 1748 by Heinrich Ossenfelder, Lenore in 1773 by Gottfried Berger, The Bride of Corinth in 1797 by Goethe, in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Unfinished Christabel, and in Lord Byron's 1813 poem The Jower. That famous gathering by Lake Geneva in Switzerland in the Year Without a Summer in 1816 that produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein also produced one of the first great prose works of vampire literature, The Vampire, by John Polidori, the doctor of Lord Byron. In fact, the vampire in that story, which was later published in 1819, was Lord Ruthven, a character based on Lord Byron himself. One of Byron's mistresses had called him mad, bad, and dangerous to know, and that certainly described Lord Ruthven. When critics and scholars talk about vampire literature, they often talk about Polidori's The Vampire and Lord Byron's A Fragment, and then they skip ahead to J. Sheridan La Fanu's Carmilla, which was published in 1872. You might remember that I talked about Carmilla in the Arl Delights program number 44. After Carmilla, of course, in 1897 comes Bram Stoker's Dracula. But this story, this chronology, misses an important step, and that's an oversight I wish to correct today, because I'd like to focus on a work that left its imprint even if we don't remember it, clearly on the vampire tradition. I'm talking about a work that was wildly successful in its own time, Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood, which was published first in serial form in 1845 through 1847, and then as a novel in three volumes in 1847. Varney was one of those Victorian English serialized stories known as the Penny Dreadfuls. Penny because they were so inexpensive, and dreadful because they usually included macabre, sordid, nasty, frightening storylines. Varney was an instant success, and due to the demand, the anonymous author continued to write more and more episodes in Varney's tale. 
Altogether, the work ended up being two hundred and twenty chapters, and when it was published altogether as a single work, the novel in three volumes ran to eight hundred and sixty-eight double-columned pages. What I'm saying here is that Varney is a long story, like any episodic work that is told in a series of short installments. It does have a few internal inconsistencies. Secondary characters sometimes vanish without explanation, and new peripheral characters suddenly appear. But for the most part, there is an overarching narrative that simply twists and turns as. The story unfolds. The story is of Sir Francis Varney, the vampire, in search of blood, fortune, and ultimately redemption, and the family he consistently troubles, the Bannerworths. Now, the Bannerworths were rich and high class, but the patriarch of the family, recently deceased, pretty much left them on the brink of financial ruin. Mrs. Bannerworth and her adult children, Henry, George, and most importantly Flora, are terrorized by Varney, who may or may not be actually one of their ancestors. He certainly looks an awful lot like a figure depicted in a portrait that hangs in their family hall. Above and beyond Varney's. Remarkable success at the time. There are good reasons why we should remember Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. For one thing, he's a really scary guy. Varney sort of pioneered a lot of the tropes that we think of as staple ingredients in vampire narratives. For example, he leaves two puncture wounds on the necks of victims. He's got. Strength, greater than any mere human, and he has powers of hypnotism over his victims. He can walk about in the sunlight, but unlike Twilight's Edward Cullen, he doesn't sparkle. Just to give you a little taste and possibly a little shiver, I'll give you the first description given to the reader of Varney. The figure turns half round, and the light falls upon his face. It is perfectly white, perfectly bloodless. The eyes look like polished tin. The lips are drawn back, and the principal feature next to those dreadful eyes is the teeth—the fearful-looking teeth, projecting like those of some wild animal, hideously, glaringly white and fang-like. It approaches the bed with a strange gliding movement. It clashes together the long nails that literally appear to hang from the finger ends. No sound comes from its lips. Is she going mad? That young and beautiful girl exposed to so much terror. She has drawn up all her limbs. She cannot even now say help. The power of articulation is gone, but the power of movement has returned to her. She can draw herself slowly along to the other side of the bed, from that towards which the hideous appearance is coming. But her eyes are fascinated. The glance of a serpent could not have produced a greater effect upon her than did the fixed gaze of those awful, metallic-looking eyes that were bent down on her face. 
crouching down so that the gigantic height was lost and the horrible protruding white face was the most prominent object, came on the figure. What was it? What did it want there? What made it look so hideous, so unlike an inhabitant of the earth? Yes, Varney's one spooky figure. But there's other reasons we should remember him as well. He starred in a complex plot that today would make any graphic novelist proud. He has a tragic and compelling origin story, which I won't tell you because it's a surprise in the text. And he also seems to come back from the dead, or should I say undead, multiple times. He tries to commit suicide to save the world from himself, and yet he keeps coming back. And even at the end, when he throws himself into Mount Vesuvius, you're just not sure that you've seen the very last of Varney. There are some great science fiction moments in the work. For example, at one point, a medical student comes across his corpse after Varney has done himself in and uses galvanism to reanimate the vampire's corpse. Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein or H.P. Lovecraft's Dr. Herbert West would be proud. Perhaps most noteworthy is the fact that Varney increasingly becomes a sympathetic character as the story progresses. He tries to save himself, and when he can't, he tries to save others from him. He's sort of the archetypal vampire who hates his nature and yet is enslaved to it. And in this way, he forges a path that many vampires later would follow. Vampires such as Barnabas Collins in Dark Shadows, Cain in Legacy of Cain, Nicholas Knight in Forever Night, Angel and Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and even Bill Compton in Charlene Harris's novels. Of Varney, scholar Kurt Herr has said the following, quote, Where other vampires are destroyed by angry villagers and violent mobs, Varney ends isolated, alone, and sincere. He is a complex character, far richer than Polidori's aristocrat Ruthven or Le Fanu's sexual predator Carmilla, and more psychologically significant than Stoker's one-dimensional Dracula. End quote. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that other artists have marked the influence that Varney has made. For example, those of you familiar with Marvel comics will recall that Varney, in the Marvel Universe, is the name of the very first vampire, who was from Atlantis before it sank. Given Varney's significant place in the canon, some researchers have tried to figure out just who was the author of Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood. Several names have come up. And even today, you might see some versions of the novel attributed to Thomas Prescott Prest. But the latest consensus among most scholars is that the honors belong to John Malcolm Reimer. We don't know a whole lot about Reimer, except that he was born in 1814 and died in 1884, he was, for a time at least, living in London. He may have been a civil engineer. And he almost certainly wrote other Penny Dreadfuls. 
including such titles as The String of Pearls, The Black Monk or The Secret of the Grey Turret, Ada the Betrayed or The Murder at the Old Smithy, The First False Step or The Path to Crime, and The Wronged Wife or The Heart of Hate. Sounds like some good uplifting reading, doesn't it? Fortunately, those of us who want to scratch our vampire itch can now access Varney the Vampire in a variety of ways. The story is online at the Electronic Text Center at the University of Virginia Library website. LibriVox.org has just released an unabridged reading of all three volumes of the novel, which ends up being more than 60 hours of audiobook goodness. Dave Flora is adapting the work in graphic form online at feastofblood.com. And if you search for Varney the Vampire illustrations, you will find several sites that show the remarkable woodcuts that ran as illustrations for the first editions of these stories. And in 2007, Zittaw Press released the definitive critical edition of Varney the Vampire, which includes notes, essays, original reviews, some of the original illustrations, and a wealth of texts along with the original novel in three volumes. And that oversized book runs to 819 pages. And so you see, you have no excuse this Halloween season for failing to show the love to Varney. I would like to end by reading one more passage from Varney the Vampire. It is getting towards the dim and dusky hours of late twilight, and he can only barely be described as he sits bolt upright in a high-backed armchair, looking at vacancy while his lips move, and he appears to be conversing with the spirits of another world that in their dim intangibility are not visible to mortal eyes. Now and then he would strike his breast and utter a dull groan as if some sudden recollection of the dreadful past had come over him with such a full tide of horror that it could not be resisted. It was not until a considerable time had elapsed and the darkness had greatly increased that he at length spoke. And I was once happy, he said mournfully, once happy because I was innocent. Oh, gracious heaven, how long am I to suffer? A spasmodic kind of movement of his whole features ensued that was quite dreadful to look upon and would have terrified anyone who could have seen them. Then he spoke again. I was happy one hundred and eighty years ago, he said, for that has been the awful duration of my life as yet. Yes, a hundred and eighty years have, with their sunshine of summer and their winter storms, passed over my head. And I had a wife and children who, with innocent and gladsome prattle, would climb my knee and nestle in my bosom. Oh, where are they all now? He wrung his hands, but he did not weep. The font of tears had dried up for a hundred years in his bosom. And with that, I wish you a very happy Halloween, and I look forward to sharing with you once again another look back into genre history. Amy, thank you so much.
Next up is part two of Jason Sanford's Sublimation Angel, narrated by Josh Roseman. Previously on Starship Sofa, part one of Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford. Chica is a young man on an icy planet where, 600 years ago, the inhabitants, called Aurals, welcomed humanity, provided they left all their high-tech behind. The planet, Ur, is run by a former AI they call Big Mom. When Chica was ten, his twin brother Amare was chosen by the Aurals, but later he broke the rules by marrying a low kid, a woman named Alna who is part of the lowest caste. Amare was sentenced to the decay pit, and it led to his death. Now, Chica and Alna toil among the low kids, a drudgery-filled existence that feels, to Chica, like it will never end. And now, part two. Thankfully, that was the only execution we attended during our time in the pit. The following week, Alna and I were eating lunch when Handel walked up with Luck and Tuck. The sister and brother grinned from ear to ear as they told us we could get out of here. Handel nodded authoritatively. Here's a deal, Luck said, sounding sassier than I'd ever heard her sound. You can stay in decay two years, or Handel pull you to other jobs for ten years. Other jobs much better. I nodded in excitement. Alna and I wouldn't last a year in the pit. Alna, though, was her usual suspicious self. Why so lenient? And why you talk for Handel? Luck and Tuck giggled, and Luck slapped Handel on his massive back. Handel no never talk, except to me and Tuck. And Amare, he loved talk Amare, and he doesn't want you to go like him. I tried to shut Alna up at that point. After all, why question good luck? But of course she couldn't go quietly. So you decay Amare, but we get good work? Handel glanced at me with that familiar gaze, which meant he was really seeing my twin's face. He tried, Tuck whispered. Tuck rarely talked, usually letting his sister speak for him. Handel offered Amare a pull. Amare refused. Amare wanted death. Alna screamed and tried to hit Tuck, but I held her back and thanked the pit boss. Handel scratched his bald head as he nodded, while Luck and Tuck grinned. They obviously weren't done dealing. One more thing, Luck said. We want to be bub mates. You got bub. You got one boy girl. We got a girl boy. Alna glanced from Luck to Tuck to me and smirked. I looked into Luck's blue eyes, which stared like puddles of warm water on an icy cave floor. To my surprise, vertigo hit, and my legs shivered slightly. I take that a yes, Luck said with a laugh. Amare once told me the cave wasn't supposed to work like this. We were all supposed to be moms. Not big moms, but moms all the same. But after barely five years on this planet, with the expedition still starting out, but well beyond the point where humanity's advanced tech could rescue us, things went bad. The heat exchangers didn't provide as much heat as the big moms had promised. The food was poor, and the work hard. For many members of the expedition, who had given up high-tech lives and been forced to bioengineer their bodies to survive the bad air and cold, the knowledge that they'd be frozen at death and revived into their old lives was no longer enough. A group of humans revolted against Big Mom, but Big Mom and her supporters, with access to indestructible spacesuits and military cleavers, soon triumphed. Those who'd rebelled were pushed further down the cave, where their kids and kids' kids were allowed to work for the heat needed to survive. Thus, the low kids and middle workers were born. The low kids worked the worst jobs, while the middle did those skilled jobs the moms didn't want. 
Just as good air goes bad as it drops and heat rises to those on top, the moms had the best of both. You know what truly scares me? Amare asked one day while visiting me in the suit repair room. I had no idea what scared Amare. I know what scared me. Freezing to death, choking on poorly mixed air, getting beat by the enforcers, not having enough food or warmth. But I figured Amare's fears wouldn't be anything so mundane. And I was right. What scares me are the Aurals, he said. The more I learn of our history, the more I think the Aurals used yours eccentric orbit to trap us in their system. Why do that, I asked. They're so powerful they could have taken humanity by force. I know, he said. That's the confusing part. The Aurals are vastly stronger than our AIs, but I'm certain the Aurals used your to remove a sample of humanity from the Big Mom's control. I suspect they even caused this planet to leave its regular orbit as a means of trapping us. I thought about that. The Aurals sent their homeworld into a new orbit long before humanity reached into space. If what Amare said was true, that indicated a degree of foresight on the Aurals' part, which scared the crap out of me. Why do all that to trap a few thousand people? Because they have plans for us. Plans which don't involve our AIs. Amare pulled a history book from his backpack. I was secretly jealous. Amare had access to the expedition's library, while my world consisted of a room of torn pressure suits. On the wall behind me hung thirty pressure suits in various stages of repair. While Amare played at his studies and overthought every little thing, decades of the same work stared me in the face. Amare opened the book to a section on ancient history. I've been studying the ancient methods of creating alloys like steel, he said. To create an alloy, you place various metals through heat and stress. The alloy that results has different and often enhanced properties from its parent elements. I know you aren't interrupting my work to suggest the Aurals are using this world to enhance us. Amare grinned. Think about it. Outside this system, every human is so integrated with tech and AIs that to kidnap us would be pointless. Those humans wouldn't know how to live because their culture is based around AI tech and control, and control and tech are all those humans know. But not here. Over the last 600 years, we've slowly changed, been slowly weaned off the AIs and their tech. Look at the low kids. They have different speech patterns and a unique subculture with ritual beliefs like sublimation angels. I sighed. I loved my brother, but I wished the Aurals had never selected him. He was obsessed with discovering the truth to everything, and one day, Big Mom would crack him hard. But I also knew he was probably right. I thought about all the manipulation going on here, manipulation from the Aurals, from the countless AIs who ran humanity outside this system, and even from our own Big Mom. That's when I realized what truly scared me. My brother. He was going to get both of us killed and there was nothing I could do to stop it. Thanks to Luck and Tuck, Alna and I only worked in the decay pit two days each month. The siblings said Handel didn't like people dying for no reason. So, once he decided to trust you, he rotated you in and out of the most dangerous jobs. Due to my skill at managing and repairing slush suits, I found myself working in the cave's supply airlock. Because the airlock extended above Yur's frozen atmosphere, the supply rooms were extremely cold, with a slick patina of ice coating the rocks. A long spiral ramp ran from the lock to the cave's different levels. Every day, teams of low kids donned their slush suits and hiked into the near vacuum to mine loads of oxygen and nitrogen and other gases. 
They then dragged the ice blocks back by sled and lowered them to different parts of the cave system, where other low kids cut and sorted the frozen gases into needed mixes and let them sublimate. Even though you'd think those ancient suits could take everything thrown at them, the low kids continually found ways to rip them apart. I worked non-stop repairing their suits, each time earning thanks and an extra ration or pail of frozen air from the grateful person whose life depended on my repair. I also continually lectured people on how much air they needed in their suits and how long they could stay on the surface. Even though anyone wearing a suit was supposed to know their air tables, most of the low kids gleefully pushed the safety limits. One day I sat stitching a patch over a ragged slush suit when Luck walked into the repair room. She wore her slush suit with the helmet off. Just outside the door I saw a sled loaded with air canisters. Where you go? I asked, slipping into low kid speak without meaning to. Luck smiled her prettiest smile, which lit her face in heart-jumping waves to the room's green glow-tube light. Observatory. Wanna go? I never see stars without a suit. The observatory was set a kilometer across the ash. Luck and I dragged the sled quickly, taking care not to wear ourselves out or use too much air. Amare had interned in the observatory, and I'd always wanted to see it. When we reached the site, I was astounded to see a clear bubble rising 50 meters above the surrounding mirror ash, looking for all the world like a giant version of that tuber Amare and I had been placed in as kids. Inside the massive bubble, ceramic and glass telescopes scanned the heavens as they rotated on a series of hand-cranked gears. On the lower level of the observatory sat row after row of bookshelves, the famous library I'd never been allowed to visit. After delivering fresh air to the observatory's storeroom, Luck and I snuck behind a telescope to watch the stars. One of the moms saw us, but he was a young-looking guy and, in kindness, pretended not to notice. Leaning against the clear bubbled wall, Luck and I held hands and snuggled and kissed as we pointed at both the stars and the aurals blazing across the sky. Eventually, Luck grinned in her cute but serious way. She pointed at the young astronomer beside us. Ask if true, she whispered, that we not going home. I can't. It's forbidden. I thought of the astronomer I'd been forced to kill, and wondered if he'd asked this very question, and been condemned for it. You can. You Amare brother. When she said that, I knew I had already lost the argument. So I stood up and walked to the astronomer, trying to make sure I asked the question in my best imitation of proper mom grammar. The astronomer stared at me in curiosity and shock. At first I thought he was puzzled by me speaking like a mom, but I soon realized this man must have known Amare. He was seeing my brother in my face. After glancing around to make sure no one could hear, the astronomer waved me closer. Are you Amare's brother? he whispered. I nodded. The astronomer hugged me tight for a moment before stepping back, trying to control his emotions. Amare was right he said. The older moms don't want to hear it, but his observations speak for themselves. We aren't going back. What do you mean? According to your brother's calculations, this planet is slowly being moved into its original short-term orbit around the mother star. Seeing my surprise, the astronomer nodded. It's astounding, he said. Amare observed a gravitational lens effect around certain stars. There's something out there distorting this system's gravity. Amare believed it was a small singularity, which would account for yours' frequent seismic activity. And just as he calculated, this singularity appears to be moving the planet back into a proper orbit around the oral star. Does Big Mom know this? 
I stammered. The astronomer nodded. He looked like he wanted to say more, but right then an older mom walked up and demanded to know what I was doing. I grabbed Luck's hand and we ran to the supply chamber, where our slush suits and sled waited. As we dressed, Luck kissed me. We aren't going back, she said. No cushy-shushy Big Mama rebirth for us. I stared in shock at her. How did you know? Luck kissed me again on the cheek, then whispered in my ear. We low kids know things. We know all the things you need to know. That night, Luck and I told our bub mates what the astronomer said. The glow tubes lit our fungal protein green as we ate, and we huddled together under a large blanket for warmth. Alna accepted the news that Yur wouldn't leave aural space with calm resignation, while Tuck, much like his sister, seemed to have already known this fact. No big deal, Luck said. No big deal, I asked. If Yur doesn't leave aural space, we'll never be rescued. At some point, all the leftover tech keeping us alive, the slush suits, the glow tubes, the heat exchangers, will wear out. We'll freeze. Luck and Tuck laughed, and even Alna smiled as if I was being silly. What? I asked. Think, Luck said. You smart, but you miss true smarts. How long are we supposed to live on Yur? One orbit. Five hundred years. We're well past that. Luck paused, waiting for me to catch what she saw as an obvious oversight. When I didn't understand, she asked how come all our fancy suits and heat exchangers hadn't worn out already. Because they were made to last, I said. Because people like me repair them. Luck shook her head. No, silly. They work because someone magics them. Who? The Aurals? Yes and no, but Aurals have hand in it. I tried to argue. The Aurals weren't magic. They were simply a different form of life than humans and possessed technologies we didn't understand. Luck and Tuck laughed at my explanations, and I grew so angry I retreated to my warmth bag. When the clock chimed its first call for air, Luck climbed into my warmth bag. I tried to stay angry at her, but with her body pressing against mine, that was impossible. While Alna and Tuck had kept things at basic bubmate level, Luck and I didn't see any reason for that. As Luck wrapped her long legs and arms around me, she whispered that the Aurals were magic. They give us this planet, she said. Their old homeworld. Now they move your back to orbit. Magic. That's not magic, I whispered back, feeling her lips next to my ear. You move planet, she asked. You do that? What could I say? No, I couldn't move a planet, but neither could I make a slush suit, heat exchanger, or cleaver. I could do minor repairs on a suit, keep it clean and functioning, but the fact that I was so limited didn't make suits and cleavers magic any more than the Aurel's abilities made them the same. But when I explained this to Luck, she merely shook her head. It not what they do, she explained, it what they play. They play big joke on big moms. I told her I didn't understand. She giggled and told me not to worry, that she still loved me even though I was so dense. I laughed and hugged her close, and we both fell asleep happy. The supply tunnels surrounding our cave were long, running for endless kilometers along the original surface of this planet. According to the moms, surveys of the planet while it was still outside the Aural system had not revealed any remnants of whatever civilization produced the Aurals. However, the surveys did show that before Yur's orbit was changed, the planet had an abundance of plant life and animals. Now the tunnels we cut through the frozen atmosphere led us to frozen organics and water. One day, Alna and I worked four clicks down an older tunnel, hacking out a clump of organics and water for the decay pit. 
or perhaps I should say I was hacking away, I turned around to find Alna had disappeared. I cursed as I checked my suit's air supply. The gauge's needle said just under two hours, which was enough time to drag this chunk of frozen organics back to the pit. But I didn't have time to do that and look for Alna. Irritated, I lost my temper and slashed my cleaver against a frozen fern entombed in the ice wall. I then followed Alna's faint bootprints down a side tunnel. There are accurate maps of these tunnels, in the library, maps hand-drawn on stiff sheets of carbon and paper, and I knew all the animals that once lived on this planet were long dead. But as I walked the dark tunnels alone, with only the faintest glimmer of a glow tube to light the way, I imagined monsters to every flick and stab of shadow. Perhaps whatever force brought forth the Arles on such a primitive world had also enabled a monster or two to survive. I followed Alna's tracks into a new-looking tunnel. I hesitated, afraid to enter the tunnel. You never knew when a new-dug tunnel might collapse. Even stranger, this tunnel appeared to have been melted through the ice, instead of chipped by cleaver. But from the fresh bootprints leading inside, Alna had come this way. I gripped my glow tube tight as I entered the tunnel. I saw a green glow ahead, which revealed a human shape. I stepped up, expecting to see Alna leaning against the tunnel wall. Instead, I saw my brother's dead face, glowing from foxfire etching every pore of his body. I screamed and dropped my glow tube. It rolled across the icy tunnel, the light appearing and disappearing to a jumbled coat of illumination. Suddenly, the flickering tube floated into the air and back toward me. I pulled the ice cleaver from my suit's tool slot and held it like a shield, but as the tube neared, I saw Alna held it. She placed a hand on my suit and then shouted slash whispered, Clumsy! You! She then twisted the glow tube off, so I could see nothing but the green glow from my brother. He was encased in frozen carbon dioxide, which made up most of the ice at this level. I stepped forward with my ice cleaver held high, ready to free my brother, when Alna grabbed me. What you do? She asked in horror. Free him! No! He angel! Sublimation angel! She referred to the clouds of sublimating air, like the one we'd created on the surface for Amare. I started a protest, to tell her that we'd both seen Amare's body ground to pieces. But by the faint light coming from Amare, I saw that Alna's eyes were the sanest I'd seen since my brother's death. I looked back at Amare, and I swear he'd moved. He now smiled, a smile frozen in CO2. But that was crazy. Again, I glanced around this new tunnel, trying to understand how it and my brother's body had come to be here. I asked Alna what was further down the tunnel, but she said the tunnel simply ended. Nothing there, she said. Just wall. I was still trying to understand what this meant when Alna pointed at my air gauge and said we had to leave. We made it back to the cavern with only a few minutes of good air left. As I removed my stinking helmet, I asked Alna what the hell we'd just seen. What we've seen, she said, is Amare, reborn. I refused to accept that. I told her we'd seen his body ground to kibble. Alna nodded her head as if all this made perfect sense. When I asked her to explain, she muttered something about the Arles and walked away with a happy smile on her face. I kicked the cold rock wall until I thought my slush suit boots would break. That night, Alna told Luck and Tuck what we saw, but I refused to talk about it. When Luck snuggled up to me, asking if I now believed in the Arles, I pushed her away. You is dumb and dumb, she said. What it take make you true low kid? Handle. 
Tuck suggested. He need talk handle. Great, I thought. Talking with a low-kid supervisor who never talks will convince me the Arls are magic. Not for the first time, I wondered when the universe had gone crazy, and if I was the only sane person left in the cave. Despite my misgivings, in the morning, luck dragged Alna and me to see Handel. The giant supervisor stood a full head taller than me, and he seemed irritated that Luck expected him to actually speak. He waved for us to leave, but Luck punched him in the gut, her tiny impact barely registering on Handel's massive girth. But Handel appeared shocked at the assault, and when Luck mentioned our discovery of Amare's body, he nodded sagely. Handel glanced around, then whispered, I know what you're feeling, he said. I discovered his body a few weeks back, but last year I also saw Guntar grind up Amare's dead body. I can't figure out what the Arls are doing with all this. I stared in shock at Handel, from his massive muscles and broad chest to his eyes, which were suddenly alive with an intelligence I'd never noticed. Alna also seemed surprised. You sound like Big Mom, she said. Same talk she talk. Handel laid a beefy hand on each of our shoulders, his fingers both gentle and threatening as they caressed the bones under our skin. I trust you two will keep my secret. Only Luck and Tuck know, and they're my distant, far distant grandkids. He smiled. Of course, the way Luck looks after Chicka, I imagine I'll be having more descendants soon. I nodded, not knowing what to say. Handel hugged me to his body with the strongest grip I'd ever felt. Welcome to the family, he said. That night in the bub, Luck and Tuck were extremely excited that we finally knew about Handel. Luck clapped her hands and kissed me for good measure. I saw Tuck try to kiss Alna, but she pushed him off. So good you know, Luck said, hard keeping secrets from bub mates. So what is Handel, a mom? Luck giggled. He not mom. He big mom. Older than our big mom. Why didn't you tell us? I asked, trying to wrap my understanding around Handel being the same as big mom, an AI, now living as human. Then I remembered Handel saying he was one of Luck and Tuck's ancestors. Wait, I didn't know AIs could have kids. What they do, they do, Luck said, grinning as she waved her hands at me like she was some ancient magician conjuring up a spell. Looky me, I'm part AI. We all laughed. So why didn't you tell us? I asked. Wasn't Alna, Luck said. Was you. You were Midkid, born Mama Boy. Handel say not tell moms or Midkids who he is. I'm not any of those now, I said. No, you not. Luck laughed as she hugged me close. Now you low, low, low. In the weeks that followed, word spread quickly among the low kids about Amare's body, creating a steady stream of trekkers to see the sight. Alna said seeing Amare's frozen body, with the knowledge that he'd been decayed, gave low kids hope that they too might one day be reborn. Some low kids were so oral struck that when Alna and I led them to see Amare, we had to remind them to crank the carbon dioxide scrubbers on their suits. To my surprise, Handel often stood in the tunnel observing Amare's body. He'd stand there for hours in his slush suit. Sometimes I'd walk back to the cave for fresh air, and when I returned, Handel would still be standing before Amare. I wondered why his suit didn't run out of air. I also wondered why Handel looked so fit and young if he was truly older than Big Mom herself. Was there something about these former AIs everyone was missing? 
I asked Luck about this, but she merely cocked an eye. You not got enough work to do? She said. Handle give more work. You don't shut up. I laughed and said I'd shut up. When I wasn't needed on work detail or to escort low kids to see Amare, I continued repairing slush suits. Once a month, Luck and I dragged supplies to the observatory. On our next trip, I saw the young astronomer who'd been friends with Amare. I wanted to tell him about Amare's body, but Luck shook her head and said it was forbidden. Only low kids need know. I nodded. Only us low kids. Then came the day Luck didn't show up for our observatory trip. Instead, Handel dragged the sled of air canisters to the airlock. Luck's not feeling well, he said. When I looked panic, he laughed. Don't worry. She ate something that didn't agree with her and feels queasy. Can't risk her throwing up in a slush suit, can we? Handel asked me to help him drag the sled, though I didn't have a clue why a man as big as him needed help. To my surprise, he attached a disc the size of my thumbnail to the outside of my slush suit helmet. We can talk through this without touching, he said. I was shocked. Is this high tech? I asked as Handel absently wound his suit's CO2 TikTok scrubber. No, just something I rigged up. It seemed like tech to me, but I didn't say anything more as we pushed the sled across the mirror ash. The hardest part about traveling to the observatory was the path was so old, you continually brushed the mirror ash aside, causing the oxygen underneath to bubble away. As a result, I kept brushing the ash back over the exposed air. After my umpteenth time doing this, I must have grumbled, because Handel asked if I knew why the Arles had preserved years frozen air under mirror ash. I don't know. Amare once said it was part of their plan to temper us, to make us stronger, some crap. Handel laughed, but to my surprise it wasn't at Amare's theory. Amare and I often debated that alloy analogy of his, he said. I must admit, when he showed me the numbers proving the Arles were pushing the planet back into its regular orbit, his alloy theory suddenly sounded as good as any I'd heard. I started to ask if the Arles were helping us, like so many of the low kids believed, but Handel spoke before I could say anything. Don't believe that, he said. Excuse me? You're anthropomorphizing the aliens. Don't assume they're helping us. We truly don't know anything about these creatures. I bristled at how Handel knew my question before I asked it. Outside this system, Big Moms were supposed to read and control minds. I remembered how Big Mom had been able to see through my lie all those months ago, and I wondered if she and Handel could still do this, even though they supposedly gave up their AI abilities before coming to the planet. But Handel laughed when I asked about this. I can't read your mind, he said. If I could still do that, we might as well have all our old high tech. Hell, I might as well still be an AI. Why are the Aurals so hostile toward our technology? I didn't say they were hostile to our technology, although that's what most AIs believe. Myself, I wonder if they simply don't like what the combination of humanity, its tech, and AIs have become. I stared at Handel, wondering what life had been like for him as an AI. But when I asked, he said it would be like trying to explain human life to a newborn baby. No offense, he said, but I can't explain what my life was like before I gave everything up for this body. I muttered that I wasn't offended, even though I was. That's what I mean, Handel said with a laugh, that sarcastic tone to your voice. When I was an AI, I had powers beyond your comprehension, but despite that, I never truly understood humanity. 
It's taken me centuries of living as a human to comprehend sarcasm. If the gulf between humanity and we AIs is so wide, imagine the distance between humanity and the Aurals. What about you? Are the Aurals as far above you AIs as you are above humans? Handel paused for a moment, and I knew that despite once being an AI, he'd been human long enough for my comment to hit a nerve. Yes, we AIs can't approach the Aurals in power and ability. Our theory is that they are a naturally occurring intelligence with AI abilities, but we don't know for certain. I mean, they told us this was their homeworld, yet there's no evidence any Aural ever lived here. Did they die, or are we unable to understand what they meant? I honestly don't know. I wanted to hear more, but by that point we neared the observatory and there wasn't time for talk. Handel removed the talking disc from my helmet and placed his hand on my shoulder so we could talk the old-fashioned way. Just remember, he said, the whole reason for this expedition was to find answers to the very questions you are asking, so don't feel bad at not knowing more about the Aurals than we did six hundred years ago. For the next month, things went pretty much as they always had. We low kids hauled frozen air and water and organics to keep the cave alive, and the moms left us alone. To my surprise, Luck asked me to marry her. Her water-blue eyes had eaten their way into my soul, so I said yes, even though I worried about the life I'd be bringing our kids into. All then, Tuck and our friends scrounged all the slush suits they could find and took us to the surface for the ceremony. As we said our dues, holding hands so only the two of us could hear what was said, I felt the happiest I'd been since Amare died. Then came the day a low kid was decayed alive. Six teenage low kids had been dragging nitrogen blocks down an airless tunnel when Guntar confronted them, telling them to hurry up or he'd decay them. One of the low kids laughed at Guntar, which shouldn't have mattered, except the kid laughed just as Guntar touched his suit. Guntar heard the insult and lost control, ordering his enforcers to drag the kid to the decay pit. Luck and Alna and I were working nearby when Guntar threw the teenager onto the grinder. When we heard the boys' screams, we came running, as did many of the other low kids. Guntar was almost finished grinding the boy's body, when he and the moms realized they were outnumbered. But they wore indestructible spacesuits, and by flashing their cleavers, they forced the low kids to back down. But I remembered something from long hours of repairing suits, how a fancy spacesuit might stop stuff from penetrating, but momentum and force could still hurt the person inside. I mentioned this to Alna, and fire jumped her eyes as she grabbed a heavy spar used to steer the ice sleds. She smashed a mom across his back. He fell and rolled across the rock floor. Other low kids grabbed additional spars and beat the fallen mom. Soon blood flowed under that unbreakable face mask, and the man inside no longer breathed. With the long spars, we held off the moms, and whenever one fell down, we smashed his suit until his body bled. Alna turned out to be an amazing leader, yelling at us to stand here or there so the moms couldn't cut us off. Finally, Guntar called a retreat, and the moms grabbed their dead and injured and ran for the safety of the higher cave. When Handel came to see what had happened, he shook his head in irritation. Try not to make it as bloody as last time, he muttered, before walking back down the tunnel. Handel called it a Cold War, a historical joke I didn't pretend to understand, but the practical point was that after the first encounter, no further blood was spilled. 
Our group of low kids barricaded ourselves in the decay pit work area, meaning we had access to the food growing there. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough good air to last longer than a few days. Without a constant supply of oxygen to counteract all the carbon dioxide in this part of the cave, we'd soon fall asleep and never wake up. We tried to reach the other groups of low kids scattered around the cave, but the moms cut them off. As for the middle workers, they stayed neutral, which meant our little group was isolated. The moms also blocked all the supply tunnels, which might lead to any extra oxygen. As a result, the focal point of the standoff became the main tunnel leading into the upper cave. At one end stood we low kids, armed with spars and hiding behind overturned sleds and muck boats. The moms lined up in their suits at the other end of the tunnel. We taunted each other, but neither side tested the other's resolve. After two days of standoff, Big Mom strode forward to talk with us. She walked confidently, looking stronger and far younger than I remembered from when Alna and I had been dragged before her last year. I will speak to this Alna, she announced. I glanced nervously at Luck and Tuck, wondering how Big Mom knew Alna was leading us. I told Alna it might be a trap, but she waved my concerns away. Talk is talk, Alna said. We got nothing else to do. I followed Alna as she walked out to greet Big Mom, even though being near the armed enforcers scared me silly. Ah, Chica, Big Mom said when she saw me. I should have known you'd be involved in this. What do you offer? Alna said sharply. Big Mom looked suspicious. Who said I'd make an offer? Only reason you would leave a warm bub is to cut a deal. And I think, why moms not attack us last two days? Again, I think you want deal. Big Mom didn't seem to believe us, and suddenly I felt that familiar tickling against my scalp. Somehow, some way, this damn AI could still read minds. But we were telling the truth, and she smiled upon learning this. You low kids are smarter than people think. Here's my offer. Surrender, and go back to work, and all is forgiven. That it? Alna asked, surprised. No punishment, no trouble. Big Mom nodded. As you say, no punishment, no trouble. But what you get out of it? Big Mom smiled, a smile without all the wrinkles she'd had the last time I saw her. What I get is for things to be like they were before, and what you get is to keep on living. Even as we speak, the cave's CO2 is flowing toward you. Once your portable air supplies run out, you will die. So I suggest you accept my offer soon. With that... Big Mom returned to the main cave. I was excited by Big Mom's offer and said we should surrender, but Alna wouldn't hear of it. What you think moms do, she asked. Pat our butt and say, okay, no, they grind us up, grind us all up. Reluctantly, I agreed with Alna's reasoning. The moms had to make an example out of us. Otherwise, all the low kids would rise against them. Even though I tried my best to avoid fights, it was no secret what Guntar would do to us if we surrendered. I knew this wouldn't end well, but what else could we do? Do look out for the final part of Jason Sanford's story, Sublimation Angels. As you know, the reason why Jason is on this show this week and last week and the week next week is because he is one of the main writers, or one of the writers in Volume 2. If you haven't got a copy, have you got a copy of that? <laughs> Have I mentioned, excuse me, stop, stop the show, stop the show. Have I mentioned, yeah, yeah? Have you got a copy? Get a copy, you know what I mean? Get a, 
Copy. Right, next up is Morgan Saletta. You know, I've dealt with Morgan a number of times on narrations. And he out of the blue says, Tony, I've got this idea for a little article. You know, what do you think? And he sent over the... What? <laughs> yes, thank you. So I've called it just everything. That's the fact of everything. But it has got its proper name. Morgan Saletta will tell you that and tell you all about his new fact article. Everything. Morgan. Hello and welcome to the first ever installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Explorations in Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saletta, and I'll be bringing listeners of Starship Sofa a monthly non-fiction discussion of various topics, covering, well, life, the universe, and everything, as Douglas Adams so succinctly put it. Today's episode is titled, Gliese 581G, The Ancient Greeks, and Little Green Men. Without any doubt, most of you listeners out there will have heard the recent announcement about the discovery of Gliese 581G, a planet in the so-called Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, where liquid water, and therefore life as we know it, might exist. Big news. So big, in fact, that even the lamestream media picked up on it. But as exciting as the discovery is, there is almost something mundane about it as well. After all, since the first confirmed discovery of an exoplanet orbiting a main-sequence star in 1995, some 500 exoplanets have been discovered. And the feeling has been that the discovery of an Earth-like planet was only a matter of time away, right? Today, I'd like to step back just a little, to gain some historical perspective on the news. For the space buff and science fiction fan, the existence of other planets and other life forms is almost a given. But historically speaking... The discovery of Gliese 581g has taken us one step closer to answering a question that is almost as old as science itself. Do other worlds and other life forms exist? Indeed, the idea of other beings and other worlds is perhaps as old as humanity itself, and exists in every major religion and mythology. But the first record of what we might call scientific inquiry into the question comes to us from the ancient Greeks. But before we explore that further, let's return briefly to our Goldilocks planet, Gliese 581g. One of the interesting things about the planet is that it is probably tidally locked, meaning the same side is always facing its sun. The planet's most habitable zone would therefore be in its twilight zone, a possibility brilliantly foreseen in Olaf Stapleton's 1937 Star Maker, a visionary future history of the entire universe. In the following abridged excerpt from Star Maker, Stapleton describes a tidally locked planet. He writes, as is well known, a small planet close to its sun tends, through the sun's tidal action upon it, to lose its rotation. All these non-diurnal worlds were very inhospitable to life, for one hemisphere was always extravagantly hot, the other extravagantly cold. Between the two hemispheres, there would lie a narrow belt, or rather, a mere ribbon, which might be called temperate. Here the immense and incendiary sun was always partly hidden by the horizon, Along the cooler side of this ribbon, hidden from the murderous rays of the sun's actual disk, but illuminated by its corona and warmed by the conduction of heat from the sunward ground, life was not invariably impossible. He goes on to describe the various forms of life and civilizations that he imagines exist on these worlds. The book is a brilliant read. But now, let's return to the ancient Greeks, who first began making rational inquiries about other worlds and life elsewhere. Starting in the 5th century BC, the Greek atomists, Leucippus, Democritus, and Epicurus, all advocated for the existence of other worlds, 
indeed an infinity of other worlds. What is perhaps most surprising about this Greek concept of multiple worlds was that they were not proposing that the stars were other suns surrounded by planets. Rather, they were proposing an idea similar to what today we would call a multiverse. For a highly entertaining exploration of these Greek ideas in a science fiction context, I fully recommend Neil Stevenson's recent book, Anathem. For the Greek thinkers and the later Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius, who also believed in many inhabited worlds, the universe was a fertile place, full of the seeds of life. Metrodorus of Chios, one of Democritus's students, wrote, To consider the earth the only populated world is as absurd as to assert that, in an entire field sown with millet, only one grain will grow. Later, in the first century B.C., Lucretius writes in his poem, The Nature of Things, How can there not be other worlds than our own that have come together in the same way as ours has done? And not only other worlds, but different breeds of beasts, different plants, and different races of men and women. Unfortunately, it was the cosmology of Plato and Aristotle, elaborated in the 4th century BC, that dominated the intellectual landscape for the next 1800 years. Both philosophers held a geocentric vision of the universe and were firmly opposed to the idea of a plurality of worlds. Thus, we must wait for the Copernican revolution of the 16th century for the question of extraterrestrial life to take off again, though there are some earlier Christian precedents, such as the Bishop of Cusa, who in 1440 speculated about the inhabitants of the moon and of the sun. It was not long before Copernicus's model was used to espouse another revolutionary concept, that of the infinite universe. An English gentleman, mathematician, and astronomer by the name of Thomas Diggs first introduced the English world to the Copernican system in 1576 with a loose translation and discussion of the model. But what was truly revolutionary in Diggs's contribution to cosmology was that he took the Copernican model one step further and proposed the idea that the universe was infinite and that the stars, far from being fixed to a crystalline sphere as Aristotle had held, were in fact scattered through space, an infinity of other suns in an infinite universe. More famously, in 1600, Giordano Bruno, who espoused the idea of a plurality of worlds, was burned at the stake for heresy. Bruno had spent many years in England, and he likely came across Diggs's idea there. Though they were contemporaries, there is no record that they ever met. In popular accounts, Bruno is made out as the first martyr of science for his espousal of the Copernican system and his belief in other worlds. In fact, the truth was more complicated, as it often is, for his heresies were many, and he had made many enemies. It is also true that the Church had not yet condemned the Copernican model, and, while it is likely that Bruno's espousal of the Copernican system and the plurality of worlds made him no friends in the Inquisition, his denial of Christ's divinity is what surely sealed his fate. Nevertheless, and despite not being an astronomer, Bruno did argue passionately for the existence of other worlds, and went further than Diggs by arguing that the infinity of other suns were surrounded by other solar systems, other planets, and what's more, that these planets were inhabited. And for that, along with his steadfast refusal to recant his ideas despite the fiery consequence, he is rightly remembered. In the 17th century, the idea and debate surrounding the existence of other worlds became known as the plurality of worlds debate. In 1686, Bernard de Fontenelle published his book, Conversations on the Plurality of Worlds. The book was an immediate success. It was and remains a well-loved classic of the early Enlightenment written for the general public in a clear and accessible manner. 
It features a series of conversations between a philosopher, Fontenelle, and a charming, intelligent, and attractive Marquise that take place during a series of leisurely moonlit strolls in the gardens of the Marquise. The conversations are clever, witty, and not a little flirtatious, but they also present in clear and sparkling detail the Copernican model and its many implications. At one point, the Marquise and her guest are discussing whether we might be visited by travelers from the moon. Oh, how glad I should be, exclaimed the Marquise, for a shipwreck to cast a good number of them on the earth. We might then examine a number of them at our leisure. But, I replied, if they are clever enough to navigate the surface of our atmosphere, and, from a curiosity to examine us, should be tempted to draw us up like fishes. Why not? answered she, laughing. I would voluntarily put myself in their nets, just for the pleasure of seeing those who caught me. It is during this same period that the first literary works resembling modern science fiction begin appearing, notably with Johann Kepler's Somnium, The Dream, in 1634, and Francis Godwin's The Man in the Moon, in 1638, which is often regarded as the first work of science fiction in English. Kepler's Somnium features Duracatus, a student of the famous astronomer Tycho Brahe, who is carried to the moon by magical forces passed on to him by his mother, an Icelandic witch. Kepler speculates in great detail about what the Earth might look like from the moon. Both books feature a moon which is inhabited by life and intelligent beings. During the 18th and 19th century, many scientists and philosophers became convinced of the existence of other worlds, including Immanuel Kant, who also helped develop the early nebular theory of planetary formation. These philosophers and scientists frequently reassured their readers that their ideas on the existence of other worlds was not in disagreement with their Christian faith. Of course, by the 19th century, it was increasingly clear that the moon was not suitable for life, and scientists and science fiction writers began looking further afield, to Venus, Mars, and beyond, and they have never looked back. Indeed, the question of whether there is life on Mars and the fascinating debate around the Martian canals demands its own discussion, which I'll save for another time. Today's science fiction reader and space buff will be acquainted with many of the 20th and 21st century contributions to the questions of extraterrestrial life, the Drake Equation, SETI, the Viking Mars mission, the Kepler Space Telescope, and so on. Indeed, it would be beyond the scope of my present talk to cover these in any detail at all. Instead, what I hope you have gotten out of this is that the question of extraterrestrial life stretches back to the very beginnings of Western scientific inquiry, to the ancient Greeks, and that the discovery of Gliese 581G is one more step to definitively answering the question, does life exist elsewhere? And if so, is some of it intelligent? Here's hoping so, and that it won't want to eat us. If you would like to know more, swing by my website at morgansaletta.com. That's M-O-R-G-A-N-S-A-L-E-T-T-A dot com, where I will post bibliographic references for this talk. There are many fascinating books on the subject of the extraterrestrial life debates, and I encourage you to read more. And, if, like me, you think Gliese 581G should be officially nicknamed Stapleton's World, I encourage you to join the Facebook group I formed called Rename Gliese 581G Stapleton's World. Thanks for listening. This is Morgan Saletta, signing out. There you go. That's just fascinating. I'm so interested in what Morgan's got to say now. Yes, please. More of the same, Morgan, please. Thank you so much. 
Next up is a little promo, finally a little promo by Schlock Magazine. Welcome to www.schlockmagazine.net. That's right, www.schlockmagazine.net. A nifty little place where daily flash fiction and stunning quarterly magazines bring you genre narratives with a bit of twist and artwork with tons of bite. If that's not enough to tickle your taste buds, did we mention it's also free? If that doesn't make you drool a little, then you might just be dead. Oh, hang on. Schluck Magazine. Bringing you good fiction. Come rain, shine, or zombie apocalypse. If you're interested in that magazine, I will put a link on, please. Come over. So that's it. The girl's finished for the day. The Starship Sova has given up her wares for free. Did you hear that? For free. So come and support Starship Sova. Get yourselves over and get a copy of this. What in time for Christmas, man? Get, get you know, a bit, one, get people interested in science fiction. What a fantastic way. Big thank you to Larry for doing that, you know what I mean? Larry, you you know what it is with Larry as well? The man's so good, but it's like you don't want to use up all your kind of, your goodness, all too much, you know, and kind of dilute his talent. That's, you know, he's so good, I've just got to pick these certain, and if it takes half a year, if it takes a year till the next one, Larry's going to read. Do you know what I mean? So be it. But hopefully we're going to hear a little bit more of Larry Whenever it is, I can't remember. What's it's the eighteenth? This show's recording now, so at the end of this month, we're going to hear Larry narrate a James Morrow story, which is just fantastic. It's got a little audio outro for that story as well, and then hopefully we're going to hear what Larry's been up to as well. Larry's been maybe quiet on the show, but he has been tippity tap typing away, writing away. So we might get something from Larry as well, or tell what's going on in Larry's world. But that man is a genius. Larry, thank you so much. There you go. Can't say any more than that. That is the show is over. Thank you so much. There will be links on for volume one. Volume one. Actually, volume one is selling as well, which is really quite nice as well. You know what I mean? Dee's kindly put it so it looks, you know, it's the same kind of book and everything like that. And volume one's selling as well. What a fantastic. Everyone, honestly, if you've bought that book, thank you so much. If you haven't bought that book, please, there you go. There is no excuse until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Activation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.